Have a seat. So glad you're with us this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to 1 Corinthians. If you don't, we have those words for you on the screen, but we'd also love to give you a Bible and a modern English translation so you can be reading along with us. One of the cool things about spending a long time in one book is you can get to know it. You can have the word speak to you in a way that maybe you don't when you just hit a couple of verses a day. Nothing wrong with spending time meditating on a short passage of Scripture, but you miss some of the themes of a book. So I hope that you're reading along with us in 1 Corinthians. Maybe you're taking some time through the week to read a couple of the chapters. Today we're in 1 Corinthians 12, and Paul is continuing to help people understand what to do with the church. If you're part of a church, you are, you're engaging in an organization. And it's an organization that's not clean and easy. In fact... It is messy, which is why our, our title of our series is that it's worth the mess. We're trying to make the, the case that though things can be difficult working with other people, being a part of a community with other people, it's worth it. And it's worth it to do it as God commands us to do it. I'm not trying to get you to be more social. I'm trying to get us together to submit to what Paul, through the Holy Spirit's guidance, has taught us we're supposed to do as a church together. And one of the things that we're supposed to do is be a church in motion. You know, the church is not a social event. It's not a Sunday morning activity. Church is a, an organism. It's moving and it's active. And if you actually become part of a church, you will slowly start to realize that everybody in the church has like a job. There's a function that they accomplish within the body. And that function seems cooler or less cool depending who you are and depending what you see other people doing. Paul makes it clear that there were lots of things that were taking place in the Corinthian church that were considered like spectacular gifts. And it was causing a little bit of friction because the people who saw those spectacular gifts started to wonder about their gifts. Think about it. If you, if you just got to write your own ticket about what God was going to empower you to do within his church, what would you write down? Would you want to be some like preacher of great oracles of God giving people these wonderful messages? Would you want to be this like uh, theologian? You know, maybe you don't talk a lot, but people know that when they have a question, they can ask you and you're going to give them the straight scripture answer. You're going to have the wisdom of God. Maybe you're going to be one of these people that's like a bold evangelist. You know, maybe very few of us are like bold, bold, but wouldn't it be cool if the Holy Spirit just gave you this incredible ability to meet somebody, understand that person very quickly, and articulate the gospel in a way that they heard it, such that a lot of people were starting to respond to it, that you were this bold evangelist. Maybe you were going to be an incredible strategist. You're going to be this wise kind of person when it comes to institution or structure, helping us to guide the movement of the church. Where, where should we be? How should we be positioned? How should we administrate? You're going to maybe be this incredible leader, that you would be the call the shots type person, that God would put in charge of leading the body of Christ. That all sounds maybe a little bit more important. And so I think we're inclined to think that sounds more appealing. But what if your calling in the church or your, your function in the body, what it seems like God is giving you as a task, is not what we would consider important? It's going to be behind the scenes. 
Maybe it's going to be more service-oriented. Maybe your job is to be a servant. Maybe your job is to be a mom. Maybe your job is to be a really good listener. Ah, I don't know. I don't know how many people like high-five you after you listen well. But what if that's your gift? You guys do great for a half hour on Sundays, but some people go much better than that. They do a lot longer than that. What, what if your gift is to be a really generous giver? And if you do it how God teaches us to do it in Matthew, you're not supposed to be like shaking your money purse as you walk to the front and throw it down in front of everybody and show like your great gift. So if you're a generous giver, again, you don't get a lot of applause for that. What if your, your job is just to be a support? Somebody else is doing a ministry, and your job is to just support that person. Maybe they don't even know. Maybe your support for that person is just really passionate, lengthy, consistent prayer for that person. And there's a lot of jobs that don't seem to get a lot of applause. There's also a lot of jobs that don't seem to have a lot of uh, importance. You don't really see why they matter. And yet, God gives them to people. He, he instructs people to do them. He instructs all of us in a lot of one another kind of loving service that is our job within the church. The church is not a Sunday morning thing, and it's not a social thing. The, the church is this body that's constantly moving and interacting with the world and with each other. And in all of those interactions, there is wisdom in how we are supposed to administer what God has given us through the Word to one another and to the world. And the way you go about doing that is essential. It's vital. And for some people, there are these gifts that have this kind of spectacle to them. But for most of us, it's just what God's called us to. How do you deal with that? Well, you deal with it by remembering what the body is. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 4 where he says, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. What's he doing? He's creating another same and different, isn't he? We've been doing this. We did it a lot last week. Seeing that the Bible is really clear that there are things that are different and there are things that are the same at the same time. That men and women can have the same level of importance, of personhood, of real image-bearing responsibility, and yet be different in the way that God calls them to act and live. Apparently, in the Trinity, God as God is very God. He is God. And yet, while He is one in God, He is three in person. And within that personhood, there's some level of distinction, especially when it comes to role and even authority. But we would be heretics to claim that there was a difference of importance or a difference of godhood within the godhead. And then here we get this same sort of a movement, this idea that we are one in the body and yet distinct in our function, that we're one in our, our importance, our identity, and yet we are distinct 
that God does make us to act and function differently. And as soon as that takes place, then we start looking around and saying, well, I think I'd rather be that function than my function. Well, let's deal with that. First, he emphasizes the unity in what he has made. And he does it with this metaphor, this analogy of the church as a body. Here's what he says in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, meaning you have a a body and that body has lots of parts, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, there's something essential I want to go ahead and point out here. What he doesn't say is, so it is with the church. That's kind of what we expect him to say. It's certainly what he think, we think he means. That a church is like an organization. It's like a team. It's like a, you know, a business. You have people, and people have different roles. CIO, CFO, CEO. But together, they're part of the same organization. Yeah, we get that. But that's not what he says. What he says is, there are many members, one body. And through, uh, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. What he doesn't say is that we're united together as an organization. What he does say is we're united together in Christ. Paul himself would have understood this lesson at a very deep level. Because before he was the Apostle Paul, he was the Pharisee Paul. Saul Paul, and he doesn't really like change his name in the same way that some people kind of make this hard break, but it's okay to think this way, that he used to be Saul, and then he changed his name to Paul. He was a persecutor of the church, and then he became, through this moment, this meeting with Christ, a follower of God that then became an apostle of Christ. He became somebody who is not only a pastor planter, he was somebody who is a leader of the church at the level that God called him an apostle and gifted him with the authority to even write the words we're reading today, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But before he was Apostle Paul, he was, this, he was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish, very, very passionate Jewish follower of the law of Moses who considered what Jesus was doing and taught and the followers of Jesus to be against the law of Moses. Now, he came to understand very clearly that that was not the case. But at the time, he was convinced So much so that he breathed out threats. It was his job to go to city to city and get um, these orders, the authority, the jurisdiction, the warrant, to go and take people, to pull them out because they were followers of Christ, and kill them. The first martyr, Stephen, the guy that was killed after Christ. You maybe say Christ is the first Christian martyr. But Stephen, the first Christian follower of Jesus to be killed, everybody that's killing him, have their coats in the corner, and Paul's over there watching them, approving of the stoning of the Stephen guy. And on his way to kill more people, here's what happens. Jesus meets him. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, Now, as Paul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my church, not this group, not this organization, not my followers, me. Verse 5. And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Was Paul persecuting Jesus? Jesus was already not only resurrected, but ascended. Who was Paul persecuting? He was persecuting Stephen. He was persecuting Christians in these little neighborhood towns. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you are persecuting me. 
When Paul says that we are part of the body of Christ, he doesn't describe us as like card-carrying members of an organization. He describes us in a real sense as being united to God through Christ, that Christ is the head of a body of which we are members. When he says that we are one in Christ, he is saying in a very real sense that you are his because you are united to him, that our, our joint uniting to Christ is what connects us to one another. My finger is not so excited about being part of the hand that is kind of close to another hand. My finger is excited that it's part of the heart that gets blood to it and the brain that takes care of it. It's part of the body. You might have connected with Hope Church because some magnetic and kind person was going to serve you and talk to you and invite you to be a part of this group. But at some point, you're a member of the church if you go beyond that kind of connection to a person and have a connection to the Lord, have a connection to Christ. We, saw, we call it being saved or being born again, but it's this process. We'll keep talking about it. It's this process of saying, I'm not me anymore. I'm his. Who I am is actually wrong. It's broken. So we talk about on Sundays, we talk about how we're broken people that are alike in the sense that we need Jesus to put us back together. You can say, I, I, am, I am equipped for farce or tragedy, but not for happy endings. What is inside me is misaligned. It wants things that hurt me and doesn't want things I should want. I need God to make me new. I've sinned against a holy God. And Jesus has come to make a way for us not only to be forgiven of our sins and like sin off to try and do better. He's made a way for us to be united to God in a relationship with him. Your job in Christianity is not to try and be a better person. Your job in Christianity is to passionately love the one who loves you passionately. That's what Jesus has come to do. And if you start to understand that, you start to feel the warmth and the joy of that, of being on his team, a friend that's closer than a brother. No, 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 no. He talks about us as like spouse, as like child, as like his very flesh and blood. Um, there's so much further we can go with that, but I think it's important for this text for us to see that what he says is, as soon as you start to enjoy that, as soon as you start to embrace that, there's this subtle thing that starts to happen in the mind of people like us, people that are a little bit proud. Because you go, wow, I get to be a part of his kingdom and his beauty and his glory and all glory to him. But maybe, though, me too, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll do whatever job. I'm just so thrilled to be a part of this body. But could I maybe do a job that's more important than his job? Do you see what happens? It's hard to stay in that place of gratefulness, to stay in that place of humility. We eventually say, well, I know, but, but maybe me too, though. Maybe I also could have a little bit of that. Maybe I could be important. Maybe I could help make those decisions. Maybe I could also have my name on some of the things that happen. Do you see what takes place? Paul's very clear. There's an, there's an envy that starts to build. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. He says that this is what starts to happen. There's this beautiful moment of salvation. In the salvation that, God, that Christ brings, there's this unity that takes place over those that he saved and called to himself. 
But immediately, the diversity within that unity and the pride within the hearts of those people, they say, if there's a difference, there must be a difference of authority, which means maybe a difference of importance. And I need to be more important, not less. And so the foot says, well, if I can't be a hand, I don't, I'm not even part of the body. Ugly old ear that you hide under your hair says, if I can't be a beautiful iris and eye, then I don't even want to be part of the body. Well, no. What he's saying is there is a unity that takes place because you are part of the body, not because of your function. And as soon as you have a pride that gets in the middle of that and starts to feel bad about yourself for that, it is a pride that amputates. That's the desire of the foot and the ear to just try and get out of here. Maybe try and go my own way. It sounds a little bit like you should feel sorry for him. There's like an aw shucks kind of moment of like, well, yeah, I don't want to be a foot. Oh. His feet are disgusting. You know, hands are not clean. you got to wash them all the time, but you do wash them all the time. Feet, only when you shower. So what? Once a week? Twice? <laughs> Kidding. But, I mean, you know, feet, you just kind of keep them in the sweaty socks and the, you, you hide them. I don't know people like sandals. Uh, no. Wear a closed-toed shoe in public because <laughs> well, we want to see your feet. So you understand and that's why we can kind of sympathize. I think that's why this kind of a sentiment grows. Because we go, no, ugh, no, I don't want to do that either. Yeah, I'm really thankful. It may be an appendix, but at least I'm not a foot. You know, like we, we try to make distinctions. And Paul is saying that as soon as you do that, you're giving over to this wrong logic that says, I am what I do. I'm important because of my role rather than I am what he's made me, and I'm important because of my membership in the body. Those are two totally different ways of seeing yourself. And as soon as you go the wrong way, you start to get into this pride that leads to stuff that is deadly. Deadly. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? He's saying that as soon as you give in to this idea that only the important jobs are worth doing, and I'm going to fight like heck to try and become one of those important people because I don't want to be valueless. I don't want to be some servant. I want to be some rube. As soon as you do that, then the body comes, becomes about just these single functions. And when it does, it becomes a monstrosity. It becomes something dead. That's what happens when you amputate something. That's what happens when you see a thing and it's just that one thing. He's saying if the whole body were an eyeball, that's not supposed to be, I don't think, funny. I think the people are supposed to go, ah, ugh. You have an eyeball that's just an eyeball? This lady part of Hope Church, and she had this really great job that was, I mean, a very important job. It was her job when somebody passed away that was also an organ donor to harvest the eyes to be able to do transplants. Cool. In like effect, but I don't know how many of us want to like see a detached eyeball. But that's what we do in our pride when we start saying, no, 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 my function is my identity. I'm going to cut myself off from what makes me a part of the body and try to be something. No, if you're an eye and only an eye, that's something that's monstrous, but it's also something that's lonely. You're out there by yourself. You're cutting yourself off. And eventually, of course, what happens to something that you cut off? Ask the transplant person. As soon as you harvest that thing, you've got moments, maybe hours, before it's just dead. 
dead. And Paul understood this. I think the background for the people that were hearing uh, Paul speak or Paul write this letter, he was a guy that wrote a letter to a church that he helped to plant. This is in the 50s AD. And it's around sort of not just Greece because it's the Roman Empire, but Greece had this really outsized influence in the culture of the Roman Empire. And one of the Greek sort of gods or, or, or temples that would be around were these temples that were places of healing. They were temples of, to this guy, Asclepius, forgive my pronunciation, and the Asclepion, or the place that was for Asclepius, would be a place you would go to try and get healed. And a way that you would show that you had been healed and give this sort of like homage to the temple is that you would pay for or create it. You would drop off this terracotta, this pottery type thing that would represent the part of your body that was healed. So if you're a Greek person and you're walking down the Agora and you see the Asclepius, there would be out in front of it all of these little pottery versions of arms and legs and eyeballs and ears. Just higgledy-piggledy. Gross. But that's what Paul's saying we become. A, a commentator from a New Testament scholar on Corinthians, uh, J. Murphy O'Connor, he says, against this background, Paul would have seen the dismembered limbs displayed in the Asclepion as symbols of everything that Christians should not be. Dead, divided, Unloving, unloved. Do you understand that that's exactly what we're fighting for all the time? Understand the irony of this, because you really need to see it if you're going to stop drinking this poison. Culturally, we are told, our hearts, so it's not the culture's fault, really. The culture's made up of all these people. Our hearts tell us that if you're going to be important, you have to decide what you want to be, be it, and let everybody else adjust to you. That you get to decide. And this isn't, you know, this isn't something that's very specific to like specific cultural issues. This is what all of us do all the time. And it's what we are told that we should do. Be what you want to be. Decide what you want to do. What will best actualize you. What will best express you. And do it. Hell or high water. Everybody else has to adjust to you being you. Well, as soon as you do that, what Paul is saying happens is you're cutting yourself off from what God has made you to be. And as soon as you do that, you're, you're isolating yourself. As soon as you do that, you're actually, you're dying. The, do you see the irony? Because the lie is that you can be yourself only if you cut yourself off from all these different authority structures. But Paul's making clear that as soon as you do that, you actually... You die. You become dust like everything else. That the only way to actually be unique is to plug yourself into what God's doing and watch as the Holy Spirit who loves you as an individual, you, makes you into you. Makes you into this beautiful expression of what he wanted you to be, which ends up actually being unique. No, no, no. As soon as you go the other way, you give yourself into what I think the enemy is constantly trying to do, which is like denature us. He's trying to make us less what we are into something that is more just sort of ambiguous. It's what we do with food. I mean, the stuff that we eat used to be a functioning part of something else. You know, it used to be a, a back muscle of a cow. It used to be like the fruit of a tree. And we took that part of a tree or that part of a cow and then we took it away from what it was doing 
and we go further with it. We take it apart. You know, you mince it up or you slice it up and then you boil it. You bake it. You sear it. And what are you doing? You're kind of unmaking it to a place where it's ready to really be eaten and digested. The enemy is like a lion that is prowling around seeking whom he can devour. This identity stuff that is not what God has made you for is an unmaking that makes you much more palatable, much more eatable. Does that make sense? I, I, I hope so. Maybe I haven't gone too far with that, but the Lord is very clear that if you do what you think makes you, you, it's going to lead you away from the one who's actually going to make you what he intended you to be. A beautiful, tragic, awful story of it is when Jesus encounters this rich young ruler in his ministry. And this guy comes up and he's this rich young ruler and everybody's really impressed. The disciples are really impressed. And he says to Jesus, what should I do, good teacher, to, you know, be part of the kingdom? And Jesus goes through this stuff with him. He leads him through the law. You know, honor your father and your mother. Don't steal, don't kill people, all this stuff. And he goes, oh, Jesus, all of these things I've done for my youth. And those of us that have read the Sermon on the Mount and know Jesus' teaching, we know Jesus is like, nah. <laughs> like, he knows this guy. He's Jesus. But instead of doing that, he goes into this one very specific place, and he goes, okay, if you would be righteous, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, you just read that, it's kind of a trip, because you go, wait a minute, I thought I was a Christian, but I still have stuff. Like, am I not? Is this the rule? Is this how you get into the kingdom? When we baptize people, are they like... <laughs> Net zero on their assets because they just gave it all to a homeless shelter? No. What he's saying is, you rich young ruler, what you think makes you you is your wealth. And if you would come and follow me, you have to give up the thing that you think makes you you. And come and find in me and in my love of you who you really are. And the guy goes away sad. He would rather have his riches than Christ. And we all smack our foreheads. Because we look at this situation and we go, okay, maybe that guy was wealthy. For some, you know, part of that area there, you know, he's not in Rome, so he's not like really, really wealthy. But he was wealthy compared to all these fishermen or whatever. But he could, if he had just given that up, if he had walked away from this thing that Christ was saying was unmaking him, if he could have walked away, he could have followed the disciples, he could have been with, with Jesus, and then he could have been as unique and as effective as all these other disciples. He could have been Paul. He could have been Peter. He could have been John. He could have written something like Revelation. Those guys were not special. They were followers whom Jesus made special. This rich young ruler walked after what would totally unmake him rather than walking away from it, becoming what he thought was nothing, which is just this poor itinerant disciple of this poor itinerant teacher. But instead, what would he have become? Do you see the difference? No, oh, this is very clear. Back in 1 Corinthians in, in chapter 12, verse 18, he says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If the whole body was a single member, where would the body be? No, we're, we're supposed to be one together in the body, which is going to require this humility. 
But within the body, we are many parts. So the second sort of piece of this teaching, and it's subordinate to the first, I think the unity is, is given more time, more importance in these verses than the diversity or the function. But there is diversity and function clearly taught. It says in verse 24 in the second part about how we are supposed to understand one another, though we function differently. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, everybody suffers together. But if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Do you see what's taking place? He's describing what it's like to actually live with other people who are different from you. And it means that you have to honor the people around you that are different from you. Listen, you start rubbing shoulders with the people in here, you start trying to do something with the people in here. You know, it's one thing to have like brownies and have them over. It's another thing to try and like accomplish a task. You try to do that, you realize really quickly that every single person that you might meet or talk to has a very different understanding of a situation. A very different understanding of the best way to accomplish that situation. A very different understanding of how well you did or didn't do in trying to accomplish that situation. A very different understanding of how much you should communicate with one another. A A different understanding of the way you should communicate with one another. We're different in just about every way, except for Christ. What you have to do in the body is honor the person who has this totally different way of seeing the world. Because God has given you that person as a gift. Best way I can see it, closest relationship I have is me and Rachel. We're married, and we are just as different as you can be. And we speak the same language. But, I mean, you get much past that, and a lot of the things that we think are, like, I don't know, appealing are very different. And yet, that difference has meant that we function really, really well together. It's only been a decade and a bit in our marriage. But God's given us the grace to slowly start to see how the differences that are in her should be things that I value, and vice versa. We become like keys on a keyboard. We're very different keys. Within an octave, there's eight notes. This is the end of my musical theory. But within that eight notes, one is the opposite of another. I think there's like a wheel, and they're kind of like set up in opposing ways so that you know harmonies. Rachel's the opposite note from me. But if we play us at the same time, there is a harmony. There's a beauty to it. Do you understand that the Lord has built this beautiful thing that that is much more than two notes? And he plays it. And as he plays all of these notes, because he is this perfect guy who knows exactly what he's doing, he blends all of this distinction into this unity that is showing the world something of who he is. The salt and the light that we talked about last week becomes real, and it becomes something passionate and discernible. It becomes something attractive and appealing. But what does it require? It requires you to submit to God as the player. And that's hard. It requires you to have a rich young ruler moment of realizing that Christ is Christ, not you. But if you will, not only in your moment of salvation, but every day afterward, he'll bring you into the body and create in you what you were always supposed to be. You know, there's a great quote, and I should have looked it up beforehand, but it talks about how monotonous all the dictators of the world are and how gloriously distinct are the saints. Go read a biography of Francis of Assisi and then read a biography of Thomas Aquinas. They have the same Jesus and they could not be more different. Why? Because that's what he does. 
He loves to do it. Such that God ends the chapter here in verse 12, by, or in chapter 12 by saying, is everybody an apostle? Is everybody a prophet? Is, are all of you teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, the gifts that build people up. And in that way, he's kind of doing a little bit of a precursor for chapter 14. But, and then he says, and this is the most beautiful way to introduce chapter 13, which is among the most beautiful chapters in Scripture. But he says, and I will show you a more excellent way. I'll show you what it looks like when you're not trying to jockey for position, but you're just trying to love because you have been loved by your Lord. This is the example we have in Christ. We read it all the time. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't become equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And you're saying, wait a minute. No, no, no. His ministry was pretty cool. Read the Gospels. There's people getting resurrected. There's demons getting cast out and people being healed and food multiplying. And he's walking on water and calming storms. That was a Whoa, spectacular ministry. Well, yeah, he's God. Of course it was going to be spectacular. But look where he started. He starts on the throne of God, as God of all things, and he emptied himself, taking on the homeless form of a servant, walking around with the disciples before he has to wash his feet. He said their feet. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient, not only to wash their feet with water, but to wash their souls with his blood, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do you do with this? Hey, give yourself to this loving Christ. Give yourself to serving people. Try to follow him in that way. Go the opposite way of where your heart wants to go. Your heart says, what is the most important thing I think I can do in my own strength? Go the opposite. Say, what is the most humbling and serving way that I can approach other people that are around me? To be like the Jesus that I love. And watch in five years, 10 years, 25 years. As he starts to grind out all this stuff and you start to realize that you are, in fact, made by God in this incredibly unique way that blesses the people around you and the city outside of us in an amazing way for the glory of God the Father until he brings you to himself. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, there's so much that we have to figure out when it comes to learning how to love one another well and respect one another well, but also to challenge one another well. Lord, to have a good eye to see what pride looks like and what humility looks like. To have a, a flavor for love and want more and more of it. And a flavor for selfishness, Father, and to spit it out more and more. Father, that we would look to the one who has made us his body, his flesh and blood, who said in Isaiah that you carved us in the palms of your hand, that a nursing mother may forget her baby, that Lucy Bonesteel may forget little Raleigh Lynn, but you will never forget your people. Lord, let us choose that love and reject any kind of pride, any kind of selfishness, Father. Instead, let us, let us be made new in you. And the humility and the service that that takes, Father, let us commit to it so that your church becomes this lovely organism 
slowly, slowly growing and building, being purified, Father, that your name might be glorified and the people around us might be served. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.